You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Our guest today on Preaching Source is Dr. Rob Gallaty. He's the senior pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and the founder of Replicate Ministries. Uh, He is a graduate of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary with an MDiv and a PhD, and the author of several books that I'll mention a little later on uh, because we're going to ask him about these books. Rob, welcome to Preaching Source. Thanks for having me, Doc. Good to be here. Uh, You preached in chapel here at Southwestern during the visit that we're recording this, and you're also here for our uh, youth ministry uh, event. And I've heard your testimony yesterday, and I think I heard it one other time. uh, What a compelling testimony about your conversion and then the discipleship process that you experienced following that. Can you take a few moments and just tell us about your own conversion and discipleship experience? Yeah, I'd love to. So I was raised in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, born and raised Roman Catholic, very religious. Parents went to church every Sunday. If we missed church on Sunday, went to confession on Saturday. Uh, very religious, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus. Got a scholarship to play basketball at UNC Greensboro, and uh, I was heading up to the to the mountains of North Carolina, and the girl I'm dating at the time is going to LSU, uh, and she said, Robbie, there's no way you're going to go that far away. You need to stay close to home. And so I literally opened up the phone book and found William Carey College in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Now, I'd never even heard of the school. And so I called the coach up and I said, coach, can I try out for the team? He said, Robbie, the school starts in a few weeks. There's no way you can try out. He hesitantly let me try out. And by the grace of God, providentially, I had the best tryout I've ever had. My mom went with me. She said, Robbie, I just want to be honest with you. She told me this years later. She said, I'd never seen you play that good before. And frankly, you haven't played that good since. But on that day, right, I had Michael Jordan-like reflexes. The coach gave me a scholarship, gave me a full ride to go play basketball at William Carey College. Two weeks into the school year, the girl I'm dating at the time thinks I'm cheating on her. She breaks up with me. And here I am as a Roman Catholic stuck on the campus of a Southern Baptist college, you know. So I'm the target of every evangelism class on campus. Everybody's telling me about Jesus. And I would hear the gospel, but I would reject the gospel. 1995, my uh, sophomore year, a friend of mine named Jeremy Brown comes to my dorm room and he says, listen, I know you don't want the Lord. I know you don't want to cry out to the Lord for salvation, but if you ever get in a bind, You can repent of your sins, put your faith in Christ. Well, I would remember that seven years later. And here's a side note for those listening. I was the last guy who would ever come to Christ. I mean, I was that guy you're thinking in your mind, there's no way this guy's going to come to Jesus. But it was the seeds that Jeremy planted back then that God would bring to fruition seven years later. Got out of college, uh, got caught up in a couple businesses. They kind of went belly up, and I decided I wanted to train for the UFC. So I'm 6'6", 285, 90 pounds. I'm training Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm bouncing at a club one night uh, on the weekends. And uh, I'm coming home from work November uh, 22nd, 1999. And uh, it's on the high rise in New Orleans. 18-wheeler comes across two lanes of traffic, hits my car in the rear at 65 miles an hour. And uh, my seat breaks off the hinges. My seatbelt locks. My back torques. And uh, I go to the doctor. They said, it's amazing you made it out alive. We're going to send you home with four things. Uh, 
And so, Doc, they sent me home at 22 with Oxycontin, Valium, Soma, and Percocet. And so here I am in legitimate pain, and I'm taking the drugs every four to six hours. And you know the story. Within, within a few months, I'm addicted to pharmaceutical drugs. I have this insatiable desire to get high. I moved to street drugs. And for the next three years, just this downward spiral of selling and abusing drugs. Robbed my own family for $15,000. Went to two rehab treatments. Long story short, November 12, 2002, 15 years ago this November, I'm in my room. I'm not at a church service. I'm not at a revival. I'm in my room, Chalmette, Louisiana. And I remembered what Jeremy told me seven years before. And in my immature mind, here's what I said. I said, God, if you're real, I'm going to go after you with the same intensity I did to get high. I'm just going to go all, what could happen if I go all in for you? And I had a 24-hour Paul-like conversion. It was so radical. The day I was saved, I knew I was going into ministry. And I went to my dad. I said, Dad, I'm going into the ministry, you know. And he's thinking, son, what are you smoking? You know, it's like, it's like, come on, Robbie. And uh, he's like, how are you going to get married by being a priest? You know, he thought the necktie and the robe. And I was like, no, not that, Dad. And uh, I wandered for eight months. Didn't know how to read the Bible. Didn't know how to pray. Didn't know how to memorize scripture. Didn't know I should, right? I'm at Edgewater Baptist Church. Dr. Jim Shaddix is the pastor and a man named David Platt, who looked about 12 back then, right? Now, he looks about 15 now, but back then, you know, I love David, but he looked about 12, right? And he, he was about my age, but he looked real young. And he said, hey, would you be interested to meet once a week, study the Bible, memorize scripture and pray? I said, David, I'd love to do that. He said, pray about it. I said, I already have. When do we meet? And for the next two years, we met every Tuesday and Thursday every week for the next two years. He was the one who encouraged me to go to seminary. He's the one who encouraged me to get an expository preaching degree. He's the one who encouraged me to get a PhD. David baptized me. He stood in my wedding. He took me on my first mission trip. You know, people ask me all the time, what was it like being discipled by David Platt? And I tell people, it wasn't so much what David said, and we debated the finer points of theology and preaching, but it was what he did. You know, he, he emulated for me what a disciple of Christ looks like before he ever expected me to follow. And I think that was a wonderful picture for me years ago. And that's really, Doc, how we birthed the ministry Replicate. We just saw this need in the church of people wanting to make disciples, wanting to be a disciple who makes disciples, but they don't know what to do. And uh, you know in the church as well as I do, when people don't know what to do, they don't do anything at all. And so that's what we did years ago. 2008, we, we birthed the ministry. And since then, we've seen the Lord use it to train and equip pastors all over the country to make disciples in the context of a local church. You mentioned here Replicate Ministries, uh, and and your interest, your passion of and discipleship is obvious from your own experience and then what you've seen in replicating that experience with others. What role does expository preaching play in discipleship? Yeah, so the, the first, we, we have a pathway that, that we created uh, called the disciple-making pathway. There are four steps on the pathway. There's the, the large, and I got this from the life of Jesus. If you study the life of Jesus, just kind of a cursory study of the New Testament, you'll realize that Jesus ministered in five distinct groups. He preached to the crowd, but, but he did that on, on a few occasions, you know, feeding of the 4,000, feeding of the 5,000, Sermon on the Mount. But on few occasions, he did that. But then Jesus spoke to what we call the, the congregation, which would have been the larger gathering, the 120, the 70. But he devoted, and here's what's staggering, 90% of his time to 12 men. 
study the New Testament. He, he did it in a community group of 12 and then with a core group of three. So our disciple-making pathway is, is a fourfold strategy. It's the worship gathering. That is essential. That's where everything begins in, in, in the Christian life. There, there's the gathering of the saints. There's the edification through the Word. There's the sitting humbly under the Word of God, preached by the man of God for the glory of God, empowered by the Spirit of God. That's essential. But that's not where it stops. So we encourage people to get in smaller life groups. These are gender mixed groups, men and women together. They're for the purpose really of evangelism and fellowship. But if you think about it, most churches and most of the listeners would say, that's what we have in our church, this two-pronged approach to ministry. But Jesus, it's interesting, had another group. Jesus had that small group of three, Peter, James, and John. He pulled those guys aside during ministry five distinct times where they were privy to certain conversations and encounters the others weren't. The healing of Jairus' daughter, the, the Mount of Olives, the Transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane. Those guys were there, and the other guys missed it. So uh, we encourage people to form out of the life groups these gender-specific groups, men with men, women with women. They meet 12 to 18 months, accountability, intimacy for the purpose of reproduction. So what I tell pastors is this. Yes, preaching is the primary means by which we disciple the church, but it's not the only means by which we disciple the church. And so uh, I just encourage pastors, the greatest thing you can do outside of the preaching ministry is to find a group of guys in your church, men who maybe feel called to ministry, men who maybe feel or are just businessmen who are living vocationally for the Lord. Invest your life in that group and watch what God does down the road to multiply the impact in the church. Mm. One of the most valuable things uh, that that I've ever uh, used in my own ministry for discipleship are, are getting people on a regular Bible reading plan. I've heard pastor after pastor say that. And at Long Hollow, you guys have uh, something called F260, a Bible reading plan for busy believers. I like the title. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that. Yeah. So after discipling guys for a decade, uh, I realize, and if guys listening are honest with themselves, they realize most men have a hard time reading the Bible in a year. Because, because let's, let's face it, five to six chapters a day, seven days a week, no off days. That's great in January when you're cruising through Genesis. It even works in February when you're in Exodus. But once you hit Leviticus in, in March, you, you come to a screeching halt, right? The wheels fall off. And here's what I found myself doing. I wasn't hearing from God. I was just checking boxes, right? So I'm checking boxes, Leviticus 15 check, Leviticus 16 check. I feel like I'm in the wilderness, right? So I went to my wife a couple years ago. I said, Candy, what if we create a Bible reading plan that, that, is, that is a way to be successful so, so you can finish the plan, feel good and edified and not kind of fall off halfway through, not miss whole sections if you go on vacation. And so uh, she said, uh, I, I'll do it with you. So we spent, Doc, about eight months working on this plan. We, we developed it. And uh, we critiqued it. We, we put scripture memory verses along with it. So when you're reading, for example, Genesis 12 and 15 with Abraham following the Lord by faith, then you're memorizing Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. We created this plan. Here's how it works. You're only going to read one to two chapters a day, five days a week off on the weekends. So in a sense, you're reading less to digest more. Now, you're probably saying, well, well what about the rest of the chapters of the Bible? 
you're not reading all the version, I mean, all the chapters of the Bible, but you're getting a picture of the whole meta narrative of the Bible. So you're going to go through Ezekiel, but you won't read all of Ezekiel. You'll go through Jeremiah, but you won't read all of Jeremiah. You'll go through Job, but you're not going to read all of Job. But at the end of the time of reading this, we found that most people are able to finish it and it creates this desire for more. People say, well, can I read more? Absolutely. Read as much as you want. But here's the baseline. We started this at Long Hollow uh, two years ago when I got there a year and a half ago. And uh, I encourage our church to read through it individually. And then I decided to preach through the whole Bible last year. And here's what's a beautiful thing about this. It was a built-in accountability system for our people because they would read Genesis 1 through 11 during the week, and then they would come in and hear me preach Genesis, you know, Genesis 10 on, on Sunday. They would read through Exodus during the week, and they'd come in. And it became this, this big thing where people would call and say, are you going to preach on Abraham and Isaac this week, or are you going to preach on Abraham's call? And I'd say, Mom, you you have to listen to the sermon. That would be my mom, right? She, I'd say, Mom, you have to listen to the sermon, right? But but it became exciting and accountable. And people finished the plan because they said, Pastor, we knew you were going to preach on it. Because what happens in most churches, think about this. You walk in, and, and I've done this for years, and I even do this now, but you walk in and you say, open to Obadiah. And people are like, Oba who? You know, when was the last time I read Obadiah? Or when was the last time I read Zechariah? Now it was they were reading during the week, and out of the overflow of reading, they were getting uh, the message, which was really implementing and assimilating the message in their life. And so it, it was a really, it was great for me. It was challenging. I was preaching different genres all through the year, but it was really a neat journey to go through. All right. This next question, I cannot resist. I have to ask this on, on the School of Preaching faculty, I'm the rhetoric and English usage guy, and I have got to ask you about, in recovering discipleship, you've got a chapter there, a comma that may have kept the church in discipleship coma. I have, you have got to explain that. Yeah, yeah. Talk to us about that. Okay, so. What's that comma? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the com, I, I preach a message. In fact, I, I may even preach this at the Youth Ministry Lab. The comma that's kept the church in a discipleship coma for 400 years. So, if you st- and, and let me give the disclaimer. I love the King James Version of the Bible. The original King James stood the test of time, 400 years, no Bible rivaled it, uh, written by 54 different, au- or different authors at the time of, of editors, uh, three different cities, Westminster, Cambridge, Oxford. They worked for three years on the translation, came back, edited for another three years, nine months to the press. I love the King James. Did I mention that? Uh, however... When uh, I was looking through the King James one time at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, which is really the text for success in the local church, right? Paul's telling young Timothy in Ephesus, he's saying, Timothy, here's how you gauge success. God gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, verse 11, 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, verse 13, do we all achieve to the manhood of the fullness of the stature of Christ? Okay, so if you look at that in modern translations, there's no comma between equip the saints for the work of ministry. If you go online now and you search the original King James, there are actually two commas in that section, which makes us think differently or look differently at the verse. So, for example, this is what the original King James would say, something like this. He gave the apostles, evangelists, uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints, comma, for the work of ministry, comma, 
for the building up of the body of Christ. So the, the point I, 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 so here's how I got to here. I started thinking, why have we overlooked disciple making for so long? Why has it only been something that the pastoral staff, the trained leadership should do? while the people in the pew sit idly by and watch, right? There's this great chasm between the pulpit and the pew, between the, the clergy and the laity. Why is that? Could the culprit be a comma? Because think about it. If you read the verse that way, it's the, and here's an easy outline for the text, mentors, ministry, maturity. So the mentors, I'm sorry, mentors, ministry, yeah, maturity. So basically you read the verse this way. The mentors do the ministry and it's threefold. They equip the saints, comma, they do the work of ministry, comma, they build up the body of Christ. But you and I both know from Greek, there's no commas. That's a translation insertion by the translator. So if you take the comma out, like every modern translation does, it changes the verse. So now we see that the goal of the pastor's trained staff members is not to equip the saints, not to build up the ministry, not to do the work. It's to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. And so here's what I ask pastors when they think about this. Think about your own ministry. Maybe the reason you're not seeing disciple making happen in your church is because you have spent all your time executing the ministry and you haven't spent equally enough time equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. I got this idea from Wikipedia. Uh, you, you from a Wikipedia. Now, listen, don't, 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 I'm not saying it's the most reliable source for information. However, it's a good paradigm. What most people don't know is that there was a precursor to Wikipedia. In the year 2000, there was a site called Newpedia. Newpedia was an online encyclopedia that Jimmy Walls and Larry Sanger tried to compete with the Britannica. You remember the Britannica? They come to your house, knock on your door, say this expensive encyclopedia that you never used. And they thought, that's not helpful. So they came up with this online encyclopedia whereby they enlisted trained professionals, doctors and historians, PhDs, professors, to write these long articles. They, they, they submitted the articles to this editorial process, extensive process, and then they uploaded the articles online. Well, after two years of doing this, 2000 to 2002, they decided to pull the plug because they had only 74 articles online right? The good thing for them was in the year 2000, they started another online encyclopedia. We've heard of it, Wikipedia. Now, Wikipedia was a very different paradigm. Instead of enlisting trained professionals, doctors, PhDs, lawyers to write articles, they decided to involve everyday people who were passionate about particular topics. So if you're passionate about Alabama football, I don't know why you would be, but if you are, right, <laughs> you can tell I'm still bitter about the LSU losses. But if you are, you, I mean, you know about the teams, you know about the championships, you know about the coaches, you know about the roster. If you're passionate about golf, you know about the clothes, you know about the balls to buy, you know about the terrain, you know about the clubs. It doesn't take much to write about it. With that model, Doc, think about this. They created in one year a paradigm where people submitted articles, went through an editorial process, and then in one year they had 20 thousand articles. At the time of writing a couple years ago, I found there were over 18 million wiki articles. Here's the paradigm shift. We look at the church today. Most churches operate under the Newpedia model, 
right? Only the trained professionals, PhDs, degrees, conference certificates, degrees on the wall. Then when you're ready, then we'll let you do ministry. Where when you look at the, the first century church, it operated more under a Wikipedia model where you're empowering people gifted with the spirit of God, empowered with the word of God to do the ministry of God. Now, I, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we put new believers into ministry right away, but I am saying this. And here's what Paul shows us. We've always looked at that verse differently. If you read it 11, 12, 13, this is how it works. The, the ministers equip the people of God to do the ministry and through ministry, you mature. So, so here's what Paul's saying, which is so amazing. Ministry is the pathway to maturity, not vice versa. And what I tell people is this, if you look at that text, there are some areas of maturity that our people will never attain to outside of engaging in ministry. And so there are ways you can encourage people, empower people to be involved in ministry. One of the ways we do it at Long Hollow is to empower believers to make disciples who make disciples. And so empower them to lead groups, be in groups, and replicate groups for the glory of God. Wow. That is a brilliant insight, Robbie. <laughs> what, uh, your most recent book is Forgotten Jesus. What, what motivated you to write that? You know, this has been a passion of mine for a long time. Uh, just came out. I've worked on this book for a decade. And uh, he, here's, what, here's what got me. I got invited years ago to a Hebraic uh, roots kind of retreat. And you got to be careful when you say this because people think, ah, these guys can get off. And some, some can. But I got invited to this Hebraic roots retreat. And here's what the guy was saying. Jesus was a Jewish man in a Jewish culture following Jewish customs called predominantly Jewish followers in a Jewish geographical region. He's not, as we have depicted him in America, a blonde-haired, blue-eyed American with wavy hair, surfer dude out of California, as some movies have. He's a Middle Eastern, dark-skinned rabbi, right? So we're there, and it just so happens that my roommate is a Messianic Jewish rabbi. So he is a Jew, Jewish-born man who has realized Jesus is his Messiah, so he told me he's a completed Jew. It was great for me. It was horrible for him. Because this poor guy, I kept him up every night asking question after question. And you couldn't blame me because you would be too. So this is how I realized this guy had something I didn't know. We go to the first session, and Dr. Pryor, who's leading the session, says to me, oh, he says to the group, he says, do you know why John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11 from prison says to Jesus this phrase this way, are you the coming one or should we look for someone else? Now, why does he say it that way? Well, my, my uh, roommate raises his hand. He says, uh, I know. He said, that's a direct connection to the Old Testament book of Malachi chapter 3. When the Lord says not once but three times, he will come himself. He will come himself. He said, but it's also a reference to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, when it says the Lord himself will come to Israel. It's the same verse Jesus used when he had the triumphal entry. Your king is coming to you. I thought, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that, right? Later on in the discussion, Dr. Pryor says, hey, does anyone know Matthew chapter 3, 15 and 16, when it says that the heavens opened up and the spirit descended like a dove? Why does, why, why does Matthew use that phrase, the heavens opened up, the heavens tore apart? Well, Doc, he raises his hand again. He said, that's a direct connection to Ezekiel chapter 1, when it says, when the Lord comes, the heavens will open up. He said what what the writer of the gospel is saying without saying a word in a Hebraic way, 
Jesus is God. Well, that was it. I went back to the room that night. I, I sat next to him and I said, how do you know this? How do you know these connections? Because I, I don't see these connections. He said, well, the problem with you Westerners is that you guys spend most of your time in the New Testament. He said, we spend our time in the Bible Jesus used, which was the only Testament. I thought, okay. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He said, how do you share the gospel with a lost person? Now, this is what got me. I said, well, that's easy. I go to the Romans road, just like anybody else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one's righteous. No, not one. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart. God raised him from the dead. You'll be saved. He said, that's great. Pretty impressive, but great. He said, that's a Western way to do it. I said, how do you do it? He said, I go back to Jesus's Bible and start where he would have in Genesis. He said, I start with the world being perfect and good. I start with the creation of man in the image of God. Talk about the marring of man from sin in Genesis 3. I talk about the consequences of sin in the first death. I talk about the relationship with Abraham in the covenant of Genesis 15. I talk about Abraham's son Isaac and a foreshadowing of the one and only begotten son who will come as Christ. He said, the problem, and here's what he said, the problem with you Western Christians is that you don't understand the old, therefore you can't really appreciate the new. So in the forgotten Jesus that sent me down a road, that was probably 13 years ago, sent me down this road, this journey I've been on for a while. And basically what the book is, is, and for preachers, uh, some people who endorsed it and read it said, man, this is a great preaching resource because as you know, the best illustration on the Bible is the Bible right? And so uh, I've just made these connections just from studying for years, these connections old and new. I'll give you another one. This is the big one. Uh, people always talk about it. I found that I don't believe there was an actual rooster crowing in the courtyard when Peter denied Jesus. People say, what do you mean there's no rooster in the courtyard? Well, think of the context. When you put it back in the context, it comes to light. The original King James translates that phrase, rooster crowing, as cock crow, when the cock cries, if you remember from the King James. That phrase, cock crow, or cock crying, is used in the Mishnah three times. This is a commentary in the Old Testament in the first century. And it's used three times in reference, not to an animal, but to a man. So when you put it back in the context, I think the actual cock crying was a man who had a shafar horn in his hand standing on the niche or the niche of the temple, and he would signify times of worship, times of service by the priesthood. Some people say, well, I'm not convinced. Mark chapter 13, Jesus has asked this question, when will the Son of Man return? Jesus uses four ways to describe it. Now, remember, Mark is writing to a Roman audience. They would have divided the night by four, the four watches of the night. Here's what Jesus said. The son does not know when, or, or no one knows when the son will come back. He may come back at dusk. He may come back at midnight. Watch this. He may come back when the cock crows, or he may come back at dawn. Now, if you know anything about animals, as I did growing up, my uncle had a farm, grandpa had a farm, they raised roosters. They had a lot of roosters, Doc. One of the things I know about roosters is you never st stamp a time with the crowing of an animal. Why? Because they are random and they normally never crow until the sun rises. I'm never going to say, hey, listen, we'll go to the movies when the rooster crows, right? It just doesn't happen. But here's the trump card. Here, here's, the, here's, the, here's, the, here's the most definitive part of it. Did you know in the first century, roosters were forbidden from the city limits of Jerusalem? And you say, why is that? Roosters are unclean animals. 
If a rooster gets into the temple courts, particularly the holy place or the holy of holies, the whole city, the whole structure is defiled. And so they made a ban in the first century that roosters would be excluded from the city. Now, why is that important? The point of that is this. If we put our Western lens and look from a Western perspective at an Eastern book, we can still read it. We're still challenged by it. We're still edified by it. But when you start to look at it from an Eastern perspective, here's what I tell people. The Bible, which you've read all your life in black and white, begins to come alive in technicolor. It's like this high-definition reality. When you see The Wizard of Oz or something from The Sound of Music or something black and white, it's still a good movie. But when you see the new high-def color version, it's the same movie with a different experience, with a different encounter. That's what the book is about, just these connections from old to new throughout. That's Robbie's latest book, The Forgotten Jesus, and uh, that will be quite a read. Robbie, uh, when I've heard you preach, uh, the thought always comes across my mind uh, that here's a a preacher that is both biblical but also extraordinarily creative. What's your sermon process? How, How do you go about preparing sermons each week? Yeah. You know, I went to seminary. As a one-year believer, I still don't know how they let me in, to be honest with you. I asked Dr. Chuck Kelly this. I said, Doc, how did you let me in seminary as a one-year believer just removed from drugs and alcohol? He said, well, you didn't share that information with us. I said, well, Doc, you didn't ask, right? So thank God, by the grace of God, they let me in. And uh, so here's what I tell people. I am a product of the seminary. I mean, I am a product of someone with a blank slate who went in. My first semester was proclaiming the Bible with Jim Shaddix. Then I learned Bible exposition from Tony Morita. I learned preaching, do- preaching doctrine from David Platt. Uh, I learned PhD work from, from Morita and others. And so I'm the product of guys just investing in me. And so I took what they said at face value. For example, to this day, I mean, I've been preaching you know, for over a decade. I still every week find the central idea of the text. I still, with a team, put together the proposition and theme of the text. And with a team, we put together the points and a working outline. So here's what I've done, and I just want to encourage guys to do this. The way I've developed as a preacher, I've developed more, I think, personally after school than when I was in school, and here's why. Because I developed a, a preaching feedback loop. And you're probably saying, well, what is, what is a feedback loop? It's a group of trusted men, could be women, but trusted men who will speak into your sermon that you trust and appreciate that are going to give constructive criticism because they love and appreciate you. Now, for some like me, you have a staff where you can do this. And I've done this now for about eight years. Every week, constructive criticism. And here's what that looks like. Now, if you don't have a staff, you can do it with lay people. Do it over a Waffle House on Monday. And they're looking for a couple things. And here's what they're looking for for me. They're looking for one thing to keep and one thing to work on. Okay. Now, let me tell you something. At first, you've got to put your pride aside because what's going to happen is you're going to think you hit it out the park. And I never forget in the early days, I'd get in this group. Man, I'm thinking, man, that, that, that was a, at, least, at least on third. At least got on third, right? And uh, they'd say, uh, I'd say, what do you guys think about sermon? They'd say, man, I thought, I thought a lot of enthusiasm. You were all into it, very passionate. But that first illustration, Robbie, had nothing to do with the text. What are you talking about? Or oh, that ending. Where, how did you land that thing, right? That had nothing to do with the sermon. But over time, 
that began to help me. Was it hard at first? Absolutely. But over time. And so one thing to keep, one thing to work on. Doc, we do this every Monday at 1045 to 12. I have a small team that comes in. They critique the sermon from the week before. And then we as a team, vocally, uh, verbally, talk through the message. Here's something you miss. The Bible was written, in a sense, to an oral culture. It was meant to be read. I mean, I'm sorry. It was meant to be heard, not just read. So if we just study by reading the text quietly, I think we miss an aspect of the text because, remember, there was an oral culture. They read, they repeated, they recited the Word of God. So in that sermon prep time with people speaking the Word and talking through the Word, I think we see things in the text we would not otherwise miss if we just read it personally or quietly in, in our own study. When I leave Monday, Wednesday, I work from home. I've, stu- I've learned this years ago. Gordon McDonald taught me this years ago. He spoke at our church, and he said, a day home or morning's home. I think he does the mornings, but he said, he said three or four hours in the morning, or for me, seven hours, eight hours on a Wednesday is like 15 to 20 hours at the office. Here's why. Because it's always like this. Pastor, just just a minute, just one minute of your time. Well, you know one minute turns into 45 minutes or an hour, and that's fine. We have to be available. But I go in the office on Wednesday. I start normally around 745, and I write all the way through about 4 o'clock. When I leave there, I have a working sermon. It's not complete, but it's close. And here's what I do on Thursday. On Thursday, I do a sermon reading. This has revolutionized my preaching. I invite anybody in the church who wants to come. So I have the the women's director, the men's director, the pastoral care director, the student, senior adult. They get emailed the sermon through a Google Doc, and we walk through it. So I'll read the introduction, and I stop. And I say, any questions? And I say, well, the introduction's good, but how does that connect to a single mom? Never thought about that. How does that connect with our students? Then I read the points, and I walk through it. It takes about an hour, and that is so helpful because I get to hear feedback, from immediate feedback. Then I take that, work a couple more hours just kind of cleaning it up, and then when I go in Sunday, here, here's how I get it. I, I preach a manuscript. Uh, people say, why do you preach a manuscript? You're limiting the Holy Spirit. Listen, the same Holy Spirit that works in the pulpit is the same Holy Spirit that works in, the, in private, right, in the study. And so, But I don't read the manuscript. I tell people, whatever you do, don't read the manuscript. Eye contact is important, particularly for illustrations. But here's why I use a manuscript twofold. One is, if I have quotes, I have inflection, I have places I want to pause, I can put that in there. Uh, Secondly, I can re-preach that message exactly down the road. And third, I can't tell you how many times I've taken sermons or topics and turned them into blog posts or even books because I've had them. Now, if I didn't have a manuscript and I had uh, illustration about Candy's family, my wife, there's no way I'm going to remember that two years from now. Illustration about Rig when he went to Disney World. I have no clue what that's about, right? So the, the, the manuscript is very helpful for that. And with that sermon process, yes, it takes a lot of work. It's a feedback loop for pastors to continue to grow. See, what happens to most pastors, they get out of seminary and they stop learning. And the listeners need to understand this, and I learned this a long time ago. A learner is a leader. The moment you stop learning, you stop leading. And so we need to continually grow. We need to continually sharpen ourselves, and that feedback loop does that for me.
Mm. Our guest on Preaching Source today has been uh, Dr. Robbie Gallaty, Senior Pastor of Long Hollow Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee. He is a creative preacher and writer, number of books. I really recommend that you uh, read him, and if you have a chance to go hear him sometime, uh, go hear him preach. Robbie, thank you for being with us today on Preaching Source. Thanks for having me. It's a joy to be here.